This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents, which you can also access at cortezcurrents.ca. In the most recent of her interviews about Cortez Island history, Lynn Jordan, former president of the Cortez Island Museum, traces one of the island's foremost industries from its pre-contact beginnings up until recent times. The First Nations cultivated clam gardens on this coast for three to 5,000 years, maybe even longer. One on Quadra Island was recently dated at being around 3,500 years old. In her book on clam gardens along the West Coast, Judith Williams describes how natives would choose a small bay beach area and increase the amount of sand on that beach by collecting all the rocks off the beach and taking them down at low tide to the bottom of the beach and throwing them into the water. You do that for enough years and thousands of years, the rock wall builds up and gets bigger and bigger. And as the rock wall grows, more sand gets trapped behind the rock wall, which increases the beach size. And that's how they cultivated and grew their clams on the beach. Clams were very important because they were mostly gatherers and you could find them all year long when other things that they would normally gather weren't growing in the forests or the meadows. They would eat clams, a lot of clams, and they're healthy, clams and oysters. There are a lot of those gardens around House Sound area, but also all around the Desolation Sound. Gorge Harbor has a number of old clam gardens around the outer edge of the beaches. If you go down to the wharf at the bottom of Robertson Road and you're on the dock, look to your left, you will see along the beach that there used to be a clam garden all along there. It's identified mainly by what they call clam hash, which is broken little bits of shell that mix with the sand. The beach is quite soft. If you look the other way to your right towards the Gorge Harbor Marina, you can actually see where it had continued along that way too. The marina has disrupted what was left of the clam garden. But if you stand at the end of the wharf at a low tide and you look down on that right side, you will see the rock wall that's there still. That was a clam garden that dock is built out over top of at one time. That's the easiest one to pick out. But once you know what you're looking for, you start seeing them in many places all around the island. Continuing on, when early settlers came, the first ones to cultivate oysters on Cortez in Squirrel Cove was actually the Harriet Bay Inn. They had a lease to grow clams and oysters. That was the 1920s. But by the 30s, there were two people cultivating oysters up near the head of Von Donop Inlet. They started with seed from Japan, which is a larger oyster than the native oysters, which are quite small and round. Shellfish stained a lot of Cortez Islanders for many years, particularly through the Depression. You could harvest oysters, clams, scallops, mussels, you name it. If you had a boat, you could also add in crabs, prawns, but you'd need the boat and traps to catch them, whereas the beach was open to anybody. I know living on Manson's Lagoon, looking across to the beach, there'd be a lot more people on the beaches the last four or five days of the month collecting clams and oysters. People that were on pensions or whatever and didn't have the money coming in yet for buying some groceries 
In the 1940s, Alf Layton had a beach lease at the upper end of Von Donov Inlet. Harry and uh, Teresa Daniels were the first to have a beach lease there. And they actually had it marked off on the beach with cement edging. It had a curb all around it. They don't do that nowadays. There are beach leases all around Marina Island. At I don't know if you've ever heard of the Oyster Man. That's Brent Petcow. He sells oysters all across Canada. He used to live on Cortez. Now he lives up near Nelson. But he still has a beach lease on the west side of Marina Island. He markets directly to restaurants and oyster bars. And you go into an oyster bar in, say, Toronto, and Cortez oysters are highly valued and often requested. He delivers to all those areas. I think he's been one of the ones that's made Cortez oysters quite out there in the market. Gorge Harbor has always been good for growing shellfish because of its narrow entrance, which inhibits the tidal flushing. The water isn't flushed out, so more of the water sits there in the harbor. It is warmer than outside the harbor. Oysters do not spawn in cold water. That narrow entrance makes Gorge Harbor very conducive to spawning oysters. That's one of the reasons a lot of people collect the oyster spawn up in areas in the back of Desolation Sound. The water in the Pendrel Sound in particular gets so warm, it's up into the high 50s in the summer. You can take your empty shells up there to lay them down low on a beach at low tide and leave them for a few days, weeks. You can collect the wild spawn so you don't have to pay big bucks to receive spawn from areas that are incubating them. In the early days, back in the 50s to the 70s, any spawn you received for your oyster growing came from Washington area in Puget Sound. There was a big hatchery down there. There aren't too many beach leases. In Gorge Harbor, there are some but mostly it's rafts with ropes hanging down underneath, like about 25 feet each. Town Bay has a beach lease. You can see the black plastic trays that they're growing baby oysters in. That protects them from predators. Because when you have a beach lease, you have to worry about predators like raccoons and birds, seabirds as well. But sea stars in particular, they can open uh, oysters. So... You may think that growing oysters would be easy on a beach. You just put them babies there and they grow. Not so. There's quite a business to actually getting the babies set on empty oyster shells, which you would have left in mesh bags on the beach for crabs and other animals to clean up for you. And then you get your spawn. There is a number of pictures that you can look at in Squirrel Cove next to the craft store. If you walk around that, you can see the beginnings and the endings of growing oysters. There's a lot of work to it. The ones that are on the rafts, you have to regularly pull up your ropes, check for predators and get rid of them. You clean off your clusters of growing oysters and then you drop it back down for them to grow. If you have a beach lease, the oysters are really only feeding half the time because the rest of the time, the tide's out and they can't feed. They have to close up tightly to survive. When the tide comes in, they start opening up again to feed. But oysters on the rafts, they're in the water all the time. So they're feeding all the time. Their shells are open all the time. When you harvest them, 
you don't want all that moisture inside them to run out while they're being shipped, especially if they're going for raw oysters on the half shell in a restaurant. You need to harvest them off the rafts, and then the clusters are broken up so the shells are individual. And they're put into a mesh bag, and that mesh bag is then set on a beach. All the oysters in the bags are exposed to the tide going in and out, and very quickly learn how to close their shells very tightly so that the moisture doesn't leak out. That takes probably about three months on the beach for them to learn that. You can then ship them to market and they will stay fresh because they've learned how to close tightly when the tide is out. Ones that are grown on the beach, because of the tide going in and out, not being able to feed, they take up to five years to grow to a marketable size, some in three if you want little ones. The ones hanging down underneath the rafts feed all the time, so you can harvest them in two years, maybe three years for larger ones. You have a much faster turnover. With rafts, you can be lifting them up and cleaning and then dropping them back down during the daytime, any time of the year. Those that own beach leases and growing oysters, in the wintertime, when are the low tides? After midnight. So they're down on the beaches with headlamps and going through handfuls of batteries every night, protecting their oysters from raccoons, cleaning off starfish and sea urchins and other things that are creeping up on the beach and eating their oysters. Going back to a little bit of the history, they weren't so common back in the 1940s. It was around 1942 when Frank Tooker and Harry Huck were horsing around on a little islet in Coulter Bay, which is not too far south of Von Donop. And Harry said, my God, here's an oyster. They found a few oysters on the island attached to the rocks. They probably would have been spawn coming out of Von Donop Inlet. Since then, oysters, mussels, scallops, and clams have been grown for commercial harvest. There was a time when you could harvest them on the rocks at the entrance into Gorge Harbor, and you could also add abalone to that list. But abalone have been harvested over the years, and they were almost annihilated. And they're now starting to come back a little bit. There's some native concerns with aquaculture for abalone, just north of Campbell River, I think it is. But there aren't marketable numbers just yet. The other thing with Gorge Harbor, that area has high salinity, higher than most areas because of its being so enclosed with a narrow entrance. The open ocean has 33 parts per thousand, but Gorge Harbor has 28 parts per thousand, which is fairly close and way more than an open bay would have for growing oysters. There have been oyster rafts in the gorge since the 1950s. Around 1966, oysters were growing more openly in all the beaches around Cortez. It was a busy time. The market was good. The prices were high. And families would be out collecting at low tides, whether it was daytime or nighttime. Even young children were out making some pocket money, digging clams and collecting oysters. In 67, the Torrey Canyon, a large ship carrying crude oil, ran aground on the south west coast of England. It was the first really bad environmental oil spill. She lost 31 million gallons of crude oil. And if you multiply that by approximately four and a half, you come up with a number of liters and it's like an unreal number. 
the way the tides and currents were working, it damaged some of the beaches along the southern coast of England, but most of it was swept over towards France, Portugal, and even as far down as Spain. Hundreds of miles of coastline were damaged. The environmental disaster wasn't just from the oil. It was also from what they used for cleaning up the beaches. And it took years to clean the beaches. In her book, Clam Gardens, Judith Williams explained how a year after the, that, Fisheries Canada worked with European countries to supply over 200 tons of pristine stocks of shellfish. Workers on Cortez spent many busy weeks and months working low tides to create an advanced supply picked from the beaches. They used Manson's Landing as the headquarters for this operation, with the beach being so accessible there to get people down and vehicles and whatnot to pick things up. They had along the top of the beach against the spit, there's a log wall all along there. Joe Jordan, when he came to the island as a fisherman in the early 70s, remembers seeing the tables. They were big tables without a solid top. They had a screen top. That's where oysters were cleaned so that there was not a single speck of any other living creature on every single shell that they cleaned so that they could be packed and then shipped out to France. They were packed, first of all, mesh bags, then burlap sacks. And each burlap sack weighed 70 pounds. This made it easy to calculate for air freight how many pounds for each shipment that they were 70 tons at a time going. The employment opportunity for locals went on for a few years for pickers, cleaners, haulers, and sorters. Of course, the oysters that were growing on the rafts had to be put on beaches for up to three months to learn how to close so they could be shipped to Europe. When they were shipped, there was usually a, a biologist, sometimes from France, sometimes Canadian, sometimes both, accompanying each load. One rather interesting fact noticed by the fisheries biologists was the tides influenced the oysters even on the air flights. Moons influenced tides as they were flying towards France. Wherever the moon happened to be, because moons influenced tides, the oysters would open and close along the way if it was tied in or tied out. But because they were going backwards to the way the moon was coming, they opened and closed fairly quickly. The tides were very short, in other words. How do they know where the moon is and what it's doing? Do they have a brain? I don't know. Near the end, in 72, I think it was, some officials from the fisheries in France placed a double order of 78 tons of oysters to be shipped that week to Bordeaux. That was supposed to be the last load. The French government requested and received a further approval for an extra 77,000 pounds from Gorge Harbor. Of course, the people on Cortez hadn't been planning on that. There was a lot of scurrying around, some extra hard work and many long hours, sometimes through the night, by workers to fill this order and place it on a barge to be shipped to Vancouver for air freighting out to France. This big order got people thinking. The group of people who were growing oysters at that time in Gorge Harbor got together to form a Cortez cooperative for the purpose of dealing in and farming of shellfish byproducts and any other associated services pertaining thereto. There were a number of meetings at different halls. And this new locally controlled group intended to provide a basic industry for residents, 
giving many people the opportunity for eight to 10 months of annual employment. They also formed to protect the Cortez shellfish beds from being raped by outside interests. Members in this co-op had to be bona fide residents and homeowners in the Cortez electoral area. At the original meeting, there were 63 members who joined up and it very soon increased to 70 locals. At their next general meeting, they came up with a name, Cortez Island Shellfish Cooperative, which is still existing today. They run the co-op that's in Gorge Harbor. Terms were negotiated by a special committee that included reps from the Department of Fisheries, Lands and Forests, and local MLA at the time, Dan Campbell. And at packed meetings in 72 still, the government's assessment of the new shellfish co-op was a good buy in bivalves. A bivalve is a marine animal with two shells. To keep outside interests at bay, a three-year oyster moratorium for Cortez and Marina Islands, which was included in the Cortez Electoral District. The government cooperated and, uh, and included manpower assistance and funding for beach oyster bed preparation. They were as eager as the locals to see success of this innovative, progressive operation. If it was to fail, then outside oyster interests could move into this area. And then everyone, including visitors and locals alike, would be restricted from picking even one oyster from Cortez or Marina beaches. So this was very important because now you can go down and pick oysters if you have a license, as long as you're not picking on somebody's beach lease. A number of local residents were incensed by seven or eight off-islanders who were picking oysters after that moratorium had come into effect, but they had a permit issued before the 24th of March moratorium. So they were allowed to finish their picking. But after that, nobody else was. All the oysters on the beaches were protected at that point for Cortez. There was such an interest in the shellfish business that people off-island and even out of province had written to this group requesting membership, but they stuck to their guns and said membership had to be a local, somebody living within the electoral district. There was a complaint not too many years ago, I think in the 1990s, early 2000s, where some residents complained in Gorge Harbor about the noise from some of the oyster rafts. One of the Americans that lived there hired a group of biologists to do some research in Gorge Harbor. Much to his chagrin, not to mention his pocketbook, they actually found that the oysters growing there don't pollute. The waters in the gorge were actually being cleaned up. The only pollution came from some ropes and some plastic things that, from the farms that ended up in the water. Particularly after storms, the rafts sometimes need resetting because they are on a water lease and they have to stay within their parameters of that water lease. If they're blown outside the edges after storms, they have to be replaced properly back where they should be. So there's a lot of constant work going on. It's not an easy job. It seems like all the shellfish rafts in Gorge Harbor belong to members of the Bee Islets Growers Corporation. When did that start up? There had been some rafts before that. In the 1950s, Bee Islets started in the late 70s. My husband, Joe, and his wife at that time were very involved in that organization. They had rafts there 
as well as beach leases inside and outside Gorge Harbor. So that's about most of what I had to say about oysters. You've been listening to an interview with Lynn Jordan, former president of the Cortez Island Museum. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. Goodbye. <laughs>